saying thank you. Thank you for allowing me to pastor you the last five years and endure 142 sermons. Was that, was that something like that? So, um, now how, um, how kind of the Lord to orchestrate <clears throat> my family to come here and provide for us and to continue to um, grow this church in faithfulness and fidelity the last five years, honestly. Um, and I'm really genuinely um, excited to hear how the Lord, I, won't, I was going to say see, but I'm not going to see. I guess I can just tune in on live stream, but, but you can't see, you can't, can't really judge much on live stream, but excited to hear how the Lord continues to grow you guys in fidelity and faithfulness to God, and therefore that'll make you a healthy church, whether you're medium size or big size or little size, it's all irrelevant, uh, or to be a people that are, I want to be able to see you here, Rhonda, so I'm going to move this back, so faithful, faithful to him. Uh, you know, when I first came here five years ago, uh, the first sermon that I preached was Jesus the Messiah, and we talked about um, what does the term Messiah mean, and why is it that Jesus, if he is the Messiah, why didn't he shout that from the rooftops? Like, why is it, why isn't, wasn't it more conspicuous? And then, is Jesus your Messiah? So I was thinking about it, and I thought, well, you know, what I might do, actually, it was five years to the day that I preached that sermon here. Yeah. So I thought, being the wannabe poet that I am, an actor, I thought, I'm going to preach that sermon again. So um, if you were here for that sermon and you're still here, well, praise the Lord. And for those of you, a lot of new additions, this will be new for you. So we're going to talk about same outline. What does this term Messiah mean? Why didn't Jesus shout it from the rooftops? And most importantly, is Jesus your Messiah? I, I mean, look, every, every atheist worth their salt will not deny the fact that a man named Jesus Christ from Nazareth walked this earth. Full stop. Okay? They won't. They're stupid if they do. No one will, no one will they just don't know the history. No one will deny that. The question is, is he a lunatic? Right? Is he, is he a liar or is he Lord? So, I bring all that up because is Jesus your Messiah? The first two are just going to explain what Messiah means and why didn't Jesus announce, and that's sort of interesting. The, the third then kind of folds on everyone here listening. Is Jesus your Messiah? So we have to set the rig up to know what we're talking about first, right? And then pressing home to is Jesus your Messiah? So that's where we're headed. Let's look to the Lord in, in prayer and uh, we'll, we'll dive into it. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you in prayer. We need your help every minute, and especially as we read and learn from your holy word this morning. Holy Spirit, come and grant us illumination, we ask. Enlighten our eyes, our minds, our hearts, our affections, that we might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. We ask this for your glory's sake, in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So, what does the term Messiah mean? I mean, we've become quite accustomed to hearing that, maybe even through plays, right? Handel's Messiah or whatever it might be. But what, we even sing songs about Jesus being the Messiah. But what exactly does the word Messiah or Christ even mean? Well, the term simply means anointed one. Anointed one. Now, would you agree that the term anointed is not very common? It's not really what you hear as you get out in the world if you're a chippy or if you like tools. You're not going to pull a hammer out of your tool belt and say, oh, mate, look at this hammer. It's anointed right? Or you're not going to watch the Matildas and say, oh, I wish they were more anointed, right? Maybe they should have been more anointed. Maybe on Monday they'll be more anointed, right? Um, The only place that you might hear the term anointed kicked around a fair bit is in charismatic or Pentecostal circles, if you've been a part of those churches. And and usually what they mean is they'll they'll see a, a gifted speaker, preacher, leader, Someone that is, is, has a lot of charisma, and they'll say, that, that bloke is anointed. And, and I think what they mean by that is, it seems that the Lord is really using that individual. Fair enough, that's fine. But what, what do we make of that with Scripture? Does that make sense? Like, that, that's nice that we kind of say, well, this person's, I think it's just a euphemistic, a spiritualized term to say, that person is, no one's ever said that about me here, by the way, but that's all right. Um, it's cool. It's fine. I'm leaving anyway, so whatever. No, but, um, you know, but so what, what, is that, what does the term anointed even mean? Well, in the Old Testament, it's actually used quite a bit. For example, um, priests were anointed by God, right? Uh, prophets were anointed by God. Kings. In fact, the king in the Old Testament, is known as the anointed of God, the Mishiach, anointed one. But it's not just prophets and priests and kings. I mean, even articles. Like, you know, up here we've got, <clears throat> I don't know, music stands and whatever this table is and, and all this stuff. But in, in the tabernacle and in the temple, um, in the Old Testament, certain articles, like the basin and the the altar and the bread, they were, they were anointed. So if you were a Jew who lived in the Old Testament times, the term anointed was, it was you were familiar with it. It was, it was common. Your, your grandparents may have even talked about, <coughs> excuse me, your grandparents have maybe even talked about um, the day when Samuel anointed King David. Do you remember we learned about that about a year ago in the book of 1 Samuel? Saul is, he's the Mishiach, he's the anointed one, but Saul, King Saul, you know, head taller than everybody else, good looking bloke, but he'd gone off the rails. And so God comes to Samuel and says, I want you to anoint a new king. Samuel shows up in this little town, house of bread, actually, as it's called, Bethlehem. And he shows up there and this little backwood water, little bush town. Really, is it here? Yeah, it's here. 
okay, it's this family right here. So he goes up to this guy, Jesse, and he goes, hey, Jesse, you know, I'd, can, can you parade your sons in front of me? So the first guy comes, and he looks something like Chris Hemsworth or whatever, right? And you go, it's this bloke for sure, right? No, no, okay. Next son comes, he looks like Tom Cruise when he was younger, not now, but you know, when, he, when he was younger, you know, Top Gun to era, first Top Gun, not second. Um, yeah, it looks good, you know, okay, no, no, it's not him either, you know, third guy, no, no, okay, and then eventually, like, Samuel's kind of getting a bit disappointed, a bit frustrated, and he goes, is this, is this it? And you can imagine Samuel sort of leaning over to some of his, one of his sons, and he goes, hey, go, go fetch the little punk that's, that's, you know, minding the sheep. Yeah, there's just one guy left, and when David the youngest, shows up, and Samuel sees him. God says, that's the man. Anoint him. I don't look at the heart. God does not look at the heart, right? As, oh, sorry, God does look at the heart. God doesn't look at the outward. God looks at the heart, right? So anoint him. Now, again, you would have heard, if you were a Jew living in these days, you would have heard that story. You've been familiar with it. But here's the catch. As common as the term was, when we boil it down to the word itself in the Old Testament, there actually isn't stacks and stacks of the term. You with me? So you can't actually, you know, sort of boil it down and go, aha, and just keep underlining the term anointed, 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 anointed through your Old Testament. What you do see, though, is a theme. You with me? A motif. You see an idea about an anointed one from the line of King David. So trace back to that story about Samuel and anointing David. That's sort of the starting point. And then going through, echoing through the scriptures you see this anticipation of this greater son of David. In fact, 2 Samuel, there's a promise that's made to David. And the promise that's made to David is that God will build him a dynasty. David at this stage in his life, is he's a bit older. He's keen to build God a temple. And the Lord says, no, I'm actually not going to have you build the temple. That's going to be your son. But I'm going to build you, David, a dynasty. And it's a really key passage where God makes an unbreakable promise that someone from David's line will, well, there'll be a succession of kings, but ultimately it's going to be this special king that will have God's spirit on him. And it's interesting how the writers in the Old Testament, right after this event in 2 Samuel, pick this up. You were looking there in Psalm 132. Have a look. These are, in Psalm 132, this is the song of a sense. Uh, if you've been to Israel, um, and you usually, you don't, if you go from the Dead Sea to Jerusalem, it takes, I don't know, depends how fast the bus driver's going, half an hour, 45 minutes, give or take. I don't even know if they have speed cameras there, um, but Bus driver's going, and you'll notice that as you head to Jerusalem, you actually start, the bus starts to go, I mean, not massive, but you're heading up a hill. You're going up. Jerusalem is up, right? And so there are these pilgrims 
that would make these treks up to the holy city, okay, these Old Testament saints, and as they would make their way up towards Jerusalem, they would sing songs. They're making their way to the ascent, songs of ascent. You with me? This is one of those songs where they are singing it, likely. Psalm 132. And it's interesting because this is actually the longest of the songs of ascent. And one of the things that gets highlighted again and again, and you can see it for yourself, I don't know if you caught it when Ralph was reading, was this Davidic theme about David. Look at Psalm 132, how it starts. Remember, O Lord, David's favor, right? All the hardships he endured. You, you remember that from 1 Samuel a year ago? Guys, you know, dodging spears, hiding out in caves. Even when he becomes king, I don't want to spoil it for 2 Samuel because we never got there, but, you know, his own son, you know, starts a coup against him. I mean, he had plenty of hardships in his life. And he says how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes. So, you know, you ever struggle to fall asleep or maybe you're anticipating something exciting like Christmas Day. And if it's Christmas Eve, you know, you, it's hard. if you're a kid, it's hard to sleep because you're excited. David says, I can't sleep. I can't rest. I can't do it until, notice, I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, and then it switches. There's this prayer that David is, he's, he's wanting to build this tabernacle, build this temple. And then it switches and says, behold, these are the people singing now, catch this. We heard of it, an Ephrata. We found it, what's it? Well, keep reading. In the fields of Jair, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You and the ark, there's the it, of your might. So what, what's, what's the, as, I want you to picture it this way. Picture these pilgrims heading to Jerusalem, and as they get into this one area, they're reminded, they're reminded of, and Dan did such a good job of this a year ago, whatever it was, about when, do you remember when Eli was the priest, remember in the beginning of 1 Samuel? And he had his two little ratbag sons, sons of Belial. You remember that? And they treat the ark like a good luck charm. They bring out the ark. But what happens? These two ratbag sons die, right? And the ark gets captured. And then finally the ark does come back. And David's now saying, look, uh, I, I actually, I want to bring the ark back later, like 20 years later. I want to bring the ark back. And when he does, he, he dances and you know the whole story, right? But these people are recalling this moment where God was faithful when it seemed like uh, God had turned his back on his people because his presence through the ark was gone. You, you with me still? And so they're, they're recalling this. Here's the deal. This song, it's no coincidence, I think, that this is, one, this is one of the second to the last song of ascents. They're making their way up, sort of like, if you look out the right of, your, of the bus here, you'll notice this is where the Ark of the Covenant was stolen and brought back and blah, blah, blah. But when they finally arrive, where do they arrive? They arrive in Jerusalem, which then reminds them of David. 
right? And arise, O Lord, and notice, for the sake, verse 10, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your, notice the language, anointed one, Mishiach, Messiah. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Does that sound like 2 Samuel? Remember that? That promise he made to him? If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. And it's a fascinating text because if you keep reading, you see that much of this promise depends largely upon their fidelity to the covenant that God made. Those who disobey will not receive the promised blessing. But the psalm ends with confidence that this king from David's line will eventually triumph over his enemies, that there is a future anointed Messiah from David's line coming. For example, in the book of Ezekiel, picks this up long after King David was dead. God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel, saying this to the nation of Israel, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and he shall Feed them, by their, be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Now, at this stage in history, when Ezekiel writes, David is like long gone. You know, like long, like dead, dead, and buried for a long, long time. So obviously he's not referring, he's not referring there to a literal David, but a descendant from David, who will be king. He is looking forward to the coming of an anointed one, a Messiah from David's line. Here's the whole point. Are you starting to see this Davidic theme being carried on and on and on through the Old Testament? Yes? Good. It's, it's, it's a, there's a theme here that you're, you're starting saying, okay, this will help you read your Bibles, by the way. This is, this is massive. We have to not just look for little words, but look for the sweeping big narrative story of what God is doing in redemption, okay? So this, this, this is massive. It, it's kind of like um, the Bible is so beautifully, it's such a beautiful tapestry. It's, you know, I, I, my kids like Disney movies, and the Disney's like, besides all the things that I should... I'm not going to go on a rant on Disney. I would love to. Live stream, you know, it's like, I'm coming for you, Austin, you know. Um, no, but uh, so one of the things that Disney does well, though, is, um, is theme, themes, right? These motifs. And, and they even grab them from other movies and kind of like just throw them in a little bit. And you're like, oh, my goodness, that kind of seemed like, oh, yep, they did that intentionally, Right? That's one positive thing that we'll stick with, with Disney. For now, I'll stick there. And I, one of the movies that I think is my favorite is Cinderella, right? Cinderella is, uh, particularly the, the old cartoon, is there's this theme of her losing her slipper. I don't know if you've caught it, but in the beginning, when her wicked stepmother and sisters, or stepsisters, are, she's, she's in the slums, and they're going, Cinderella, Cinderella. And she's like, oh, oh, okay. And she's, you know, trying to carry all of the, you know, all of their tea and their breakfast upstairs. You remember this? And rightly so, 
Lucifer the cat, which is every cat, is, 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 is upset about it and trying to eat the mice and, and all that stuff. And, and, and there she goes up the stairs, up the stairs. And what does she do? She loses her slipper, right? And that's where she's at the bottom, okay? Next place she loses her slipper, if you remember, is at the ball. That's the famous one, okay? And she loses her slipper there. Finally, she loses her slipper a third time, but it's on her wedding day as she's running down the steps. And she loses, oh, you know, I don't think she just, it just happens to be clumsy. I'm sure that might, she may be just ditzy and not much may be part of it. But, but, but I think there's a theme there that Disney's wanting to catch. Because finally, in the very last one, when she loses her slipper again, who slips it on her but the king? And she kisses the king. I think there's just a crescendo there of a theme. In the same way, there is this ratcheting up theme of David, the anointed one, the Mishioch, the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah. And then when you open up the New Testament, which I want you to go there now, look at the very first thing that Matthew highlights. Uh, It's no coincidence that right from the get-go, Matthew picks up this descendant of David theme to point to the Messiah, the Christ. Look what he says. Matthew, very first verse. If you're like, where, where, where? First verse in your New Testament. First verse, as in Matthew 1, 1. Look at what it says. The book of the mobile phone of Jesus. Notice, Messiah, Christ. And notice, the son of who? David. Now, wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, it's interesting, the ordering there, because when you think about it, why would Matthew list David first? Chronologically, who came first, Abraham or David? Yeah, Abraham. So is this a typo? Or perhaps poor Matthew wasn't listening during his Sunday school class? Or maybe he doesn't know his Old Testament very well? No, Matthew's timetable, friend, is not messed up. This is not you know, sort of a a, a blip. This is an intentional highlighting of David. Matthew has theological reasons for writing, for recounting, for ordering the way he does. He wants us to know that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah that they've been anticipating from David's line. It's no accident that right from the get-go, Matthew picks up this son of David theme. In fact, what does Matthew do? Is this, is this just it? No, 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 no. When Jesus was walking, and I want you to picture this, when Jesus was walking, great crowds were following him. There were two blind men sitting on the roadside, and they cried out for Jesus for healing. And do you remember how they addressed him, these two blind men? Son of who? David, have mercy on us. And he does. Or how about, one of my favorite stories, is when the Canaanite woman Remember, just the fact that he's, remember Canaanites are like long gone, so Matthew highlights, you may not have been here for that, but Matthew highlights the idea of Canaanite intentionally, right? Those are the outsiders. And this Canaanite woman says, son of David, whose daughter was possessed by a demon, son of David. Or how about when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, Hosanna, save now, that's what that means, to the son of David. 
All throughout Matthew's gospel, he paints a picture of Jesus as this long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one from David's line. Now, initially, we may not feel the weight of this, but it's helpful to understand that Christ, I've said this before, is not his last name. It's his title. Do you understand? It's his title. The name Christ suggests something concerning his person. It is a divine title. He is the anointed one, the king of all. So what does this term Messiah mean? It means that Jesus is this Christ. He is the anointed one, the greater son of David, anointed by the Spirit of God, by the Father, and anointed for kingship. I mean, is it any wonder that when there's this kingdom, guys, you have the Old Testament ends, you've got 400 years where they have no king. No king. They've been bashed by the Babylonians. They're longing for this king. That's why in Ezekiel, that we're looking, everyone's saying, can you bring David back? Not literally, but a son of David figure. And Matthew says, here he is, Jesus, the Messiah, this anointed one that you've been waiting for from the line of David. And Jesus, the very first thing that Matthew records when Jesus opens his mouth, what does he say? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is here. It's now through me. Repent, turn to me. Amazing. Now, this leads us to our second point though. If it's so important, why, if this term Messiah is so important, why didn't Jesus just go to Jerusalem and say, I'm the Messiah? And everyone would say, sweet, we've been waiting for you. What, what, what's with all the sort of cryptic language that Jesus uses? Do you know what I mean by that? Like, he discloses things to his disciples, but why, why not just announce it from the rooftops? Well, since you're already in Matthew, turn to 16. Look at 16. 16, and you'll see it with your own eyes, an example of this. Jesus and his disciples enter an area filled with idols. So Jesus pulls his disciples aside and privately asks them. They look around, they see these, this idol to this and this idol to that, and he says, hey, you know, a lot of people have been talking about me. I'm just curious, who do you say that I am? Look at Matthew 16, verse 13. Again, by now, Jesus' ministry had become pretty well, it's a pretty well-known figure. He could attract a crowd. The reporter news of his coming would spread rapidly. This is even prior to Instagram and Twitter. People would just hear about him, right? And the crowds would find out where he was going, and they would show up to hear him and watch him heal the sick and all that. And as Jesus viewed the crowds, right, notice here, go, go to verse 16, Simon Peter replied, well, let's come up, actually. Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, you, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, notice, you are the Mishiach. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah the son of the living God. Did you catch that? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Now, Jesus responds by saying, yep, Peter, you're spot on. But you didn't get this information because you were smarter than the rest of the boys here, but because God revealed that to you. 
But the real shocker comes in verse 20. Notice verse 20. Then he strictly charged disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Isn't that like backwards? Aren't we supposed to tell people that Jesus is the Christ? And then he pulls everyone in and he goes, don't tell anyone about this. Like, huh? What's up with that? Why didn't Jesus announce or want it announced that he was the Christ? I mean, don't, remember all throughout the Old Testament, I just spent the last, whatever, 20 minutes explaining, you know, there's this anticipation, rah, 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 and Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, I'm him, I'm him. You're spot on, Peter. Blessed are you, because, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but don't tell anyone. Like, what? Well, remember that this time in ancient Palestine, there is this massive expectation, right, for this leader, for this figure to come. And in their eyes, what this figure does is come and basically bash the Romans, get them out of the Holy Land, and set up his throne. That's what they're anticipating. So in Jesus' day, this messianic expectation was everywhere. It was rife. It's the air you breathed. It's like more than 2016 in America, which I know you can't relate to that. But, you know, when it was like, who's going to be the next president, you know? And it was just so annoying because that's all everyone talked about. And I said, I'm out of here. I'm going to Australia. And then I'm going to come back. I'm going to make them great again, again, again. Right? And, and so, but there's just this, this, you can, you guys probably can't relate to it as much here. I don't, you guys aren't that into your politicians. But there's, um, but there's just this sense of, oh, when, when this person becomes this leader, Finally, we've arrived, okay? That's what's, that, that's what's happening in ancient Palestine, but like on steroids, do you understand? They're waiting for this any second so that they can draw arms, do whatever they need to do, get rid of the Romans out of there. So if Jesus publicly accepted the label Messiah, there would have been a political tsunami that happened. Do you understand? It would have flooded Israel. Had he openly identified himself as Messiah, he would have created a political uprising, but that's not why he came. Jesus didn't come to conquer through military might and force, but through suffering and death. Look at what he says in verse 21, if you keep reading there. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Yep, we're waiting for that. That's right, let's march to Jerusalem, but, but to do what? And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now, when Peter hears this, he goes, oh, totally, that makes sense. I get it. You know what? That's the kind of Messiah we've been waiting for. Sweet. You're going to be a suffering Messiah. I'm making the connection with Isaiah 53. Nope. It's not, he's actually quite baffled. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Because in his mind, he, this, this seems ludicrous. Again, this, this Messiah they've been waiting for, he doesn't come and get bashed and strung up on a cross and humiliated. He comes like William Wallace and, you know, conquers. He does conquer, but he conquers through his own substitutionary death. 
He crushes Satan's head, Genesis 3.15, but through his death and resurrection. But he turned, that's why I said to him, get behind me, Satan. We all know this, right? You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So what's going on here? Peter's got no idea. He's no idea the mission of Christ here. Who is the Messiah? Well, Jesus made it clear. I'm going to Jerusalem. In Peter's eyes, this seems, he can't make sense of it. Because Peter has, I think, at this stage, a Messiah, and which wouldn't have been uncommon, I'm not trying to fault Peter, but a Messiah of his own making. Does that make sense? He, he had a view, a vision, an idea that Jesus says, we're chalk and cheese different here. We're, we're totally, you have this view that I'm going to do this, and that's, that's actually not what I'm going to do. And I wonder if you, dear friend, have a Messiah of your own making. I wonder if you've had this idea of who Jesus is and how he can bless your life or take away pain or get you the job or the spouse that you wanted. And you just got to kind of pray to him just sort of acknowledge that he's there. Just don't go off the rails too much and he'll just kind of sprinkle your life with blessings. Because that's what's taught far and wide on the Central Coast and around the world. And that's not Jesus the Messiah. I wonder, I wonder how many pastors of megachurches or even churches here on the Central Coast would pull Jesus aside and say, no, 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 no. Your death, truth, what, what you say about marriage and all. No, 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 no. Jesus, you're here to bless people. And, and Jesus says, I came to bring the sword, actually. I came to divide. That's what I came to do. I'm the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Well, that's not really going to sell well, Lord. They're, they're going to cancel you. But it's, uh, is, is Jesus your Messiah? That's what I want to ask. Is Jesus your Messiah? Or is he a Messiah of your own making? People have respect for Jesus, right? That he's a, he's a good teacher, he's a good leader, he's a good influencer. Might be an, an influencer on YouTube, right? Trying to help people or whatever. That he's one of history's great compassionate figures. Um, you know, all those might be true to an extent. But um, there are some of you this morning because, you know, You've been familiar with church, you've grown up around it, and you're basically, you're here because of what other people say about Jesus, or you've kind of got sort of bits and pieces about who this Jesus is. But can I direct you to Jesus personally to let Jesus' words come to you? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? See, will you see him in his greatness and his power and his mercy and his love, will you trust him as this king, anointed one, Christ, Messiah, deliverer? Will you trust him as your savior and know the joy and the peace and the hope of being his child? Will you call on him and confess Christ's name? This Messiah can be your savior, dear friend. He is a deliverer. 
He is a deliverer from sin. And for those of us who are presently trusting in Christ for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life, we have been adopted into God's family, into his kingdom. He is the Christ. He is our king. And so we are called to obey him as his humble servants. In a similar way, right, the moment a child is born into the family and into royalty, they become a, a prince or a princess, right? Uh, they'll have to learn to bo- behave in a royal manner, yet their standing is, is never in doubt because of their royal lineage and their royal birth. If we confess Jesus as the true Messiah, then we will serve him as our king forever because we've been adopted by him. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forever will save his life, must lose it. I wonder how that's sitting with you. I wonder if you've created a Jesus, and maybe you've been sold a bunch of garbage by some other pastors or some other Christian books out there. Jesus makes it very clear. He is the Messiah. Turn to him. Be forgiven of your sin. No life everlasting. Christ is the way, dear friend. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come to you as your people, confessing you as the Christ, confessing that this is not from our own thoughts, but is revealed to us by your Spirit. So we ask, as we come to you now to celebrate communion together, that you would be present among us in a special way. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.